Thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, I am so glad that you are here. Let's go in and send these guys down that side, down that side. If you will sign your name in, that's great. Just in case you have not heard, we're taking uh, attendance because we are trying to track our uh, numbers and just to see how we're doing in fulfilling our vision. It's very important. It's not because we want to know where you were on uh, somebody, the cops are coming and want to know where Bob Atkins was on Wednesday night. Um, but in case they do, we know. Um, but the, uh, it's because we want to know if the things that we are doing are helping people to live into a personal and intimate relation with Jesus. That's our vision, and we want to know if we're doing a good job with that. So tracking the numbers helps, and so if you just sign that in, that would be fantastic. Um, so I'm so excited that you're here tonight. My friend Justin Holcomb has come up from, from Orlando. Uh, he is the Reverend Canon Doctor, Justin Holcomb. So keep your distance. Um, he, is, uh, he is something special. He, he really is something special. Um, I remember hearing about you, Justin, uh, when you and your wife wrote a book about um, healing from sexual abuse, if I, if I remember that right. Um, healing from my disgrace, is that right? Rid of my disgrace. And, um, but you've written lots of other things about theologians, and all sorts of different things, but now you serve as the canon for vocations in the Diocese of Central Florida, which is essentially that you are a pastor to pastors, which is a great thing. You've got a, I don't know how much of your story you'll tell, but he's, he's been all over the country and doing cool stuff for Jesus, so uh, I've been wanting to have you here since I got here, and I'm so glad that you are here, and I hope this won't be the last time. Uh, next week, we have Roger Williams. Uh, who's our buddy from around the corner at the uh, pastor of the AME Church, Philip Cousins. And uh, I hope that you will come and hear him as he talks about prayer. And then the following week at 7 o'clock, not at 6.30, which we have most of our stuff, but at 7 o'clock, Bob Moore and the choir will be doing, performing first ever world premiere cantata um, that Bob wrote. So... um, Bring your friends. What a great thing. It's a great way to sort of kick off your, your holy... Well, we'll have, of course, Palm Sunday, then Holy Week, uh, sort of... Holy, that's Holy Wednesday. Then Monday, Thursday at 6.30, Good Friday at noon and 6.30, although we'll have... I think we're going to actually do a Stations of the Cross in here uh, at 3. We're still, that's still in the works. So, and then Easter, you can come to sunrise and then 8 o'clock and then 10.30. I am. So... Um, um, <laughs> hope that you'll be there for all of those. So, Justin, come on up. We'd love to uh, hear from you. And uh, I'm going to pull this lectern on over, right in the middle, if that's okay. I'm going to give you this microphone. If you could put it on your left ear, that's going to work the best. But last week, uh, our guy Michael put it on his right ear, and it was, it was way off to the side. It was really funny. So, you can just put that in. <laughs> We'll do it over here on this side. Uh, All right, brother, thanks so much for being here, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say to us. Well, is it Joe or Father Joe, Reverend Joe? Um, We we just call him Joe. Joe. I can tell. Unless Unless they're angry at you. Okay. Well, thank you, Joe, for the invitation, and uh, thank you all for the hospitality. He said I'd be treated well, and I've eaten too much, which is a funny thing to do on a Lenten series dinner, uh, So, uh, but I don't mind. Um, I'm not drinking. That's my thing right now. Um, it's not even for Lent. It's just because I, I, uh, we have alcoholics in the family, and I wanted to lose some weight, and uh, so I just picked a month, and it happened to be during Lent, so everyone thinks I'm really, really spiritual right now. Um, so... Let me get this one thing. There we go. That's why you were putting it on my back pocket. So it's a short. All right. So just, uh, we have plenty of time. I promise you, you will be out by 7.45, okay? <laughs> wow. You guys are intense. I like your style. Well, here's the deal. I'm probably borderline OCD, so you'll probably, how about 743 as long as I'm in charge? How's that? (laughs) um, 
So we have plenty of time. So I, just by way of introduction on myself and my family and get used to my voice, all that kind of fun stuff, um, as Joe said, I'm two hours south in Orlando. Been there for five years. I'm originally from Sarasota, Florida. So I'm a Florida West Coast boy. And so being landlocked in Orlando, my wife, uh, when we moved from Seattle to Orlando, said, well, I'll go anywhere except Orlando. <laughs> my family's in Sarasota. Her family's in Lake City. So Orlando's two hours right in between. We have the only two grandchildren on both sides of the family. Our parents vacation together sometimes. We got it made in a crazy way that I know is not normal. So we thought my midlife crisis at 40 was to move close to my mommy and daddy. And, and so I did. I, uh, I, 40, I thought I'm, we went and moved to Orlando and didn't have a plan. Um, we're gonna, I went to seminary there, so I knew people. And then backed into the job of being a canon for vocations for Bishop Brewer in the diocese. We have 85 churches. And we, this, right now we have 12 openings out of 86. That's this year. In the past three years, we've had, uh, at the end of this year, we would have had a turnover of uh, over 50% of our churches in the past four or five years. So my job is to find clergy. Um, I work very well with uh, Canon uh, DeFore. We talk to each other quite a bit, the Canon of the Ordinary here, and our my bishop with uh, your bishop also are in numerous places working together, serving together. So it feels really good to be here just in the partner diocese, both because of the bishop's relationships, the canon's relationships, but our friendship. Joe and I have known each other since uh, Advent, and we you know there's a text here and there, a few emails of sharing names, what do you know? And so I was looking forward to being here, uh, to be with him, but also because I've been hearing about you all. When I heard that he was, I didn't know he was on the market. And then he told me, he informed me he was moving to Jacksonville, and I was upset that I didn't try to get him in our diocese because I like him a lot. And so, um, I know, I, that's just, you're confirming everything that made me angry about not knowing when I, he, was, he was looking. <laughs> so, um, I'm married, been married for like 11 years or so. My wife doesn't even know, so she still has to count too. It's not because I'm a guy. Um, and we have two little girls who are seven and nine, and we're a foster family. And um, we've written a few books. He told you about the first one, which is called Rid of My Disgrace. It's a book about, um, making sure there's no little ears in here, about sexual assault. And the, the hope and healing from the gospel that victims of sexual assault um, need to hear. And then we wrote another one on domestic abuse called Is It My Fault? Hope and Healing for Those Suffering Domestic Violence. Then we wrote a third book called God Made All of Me, How to Protect, How to Help Children, it's a kid, that was actually a children's book, and it's How to Help Children Protect Their Bodies, a sexual abuse prevention. So as you can tell, we're kind of the Debbie Downer of any dinner party. So we will, we will show up somewhere and say, oh, we heard you guys write books. What do you write books about? Sexual assault, domestic violence, and child sexual abuse. There you go. <laughs> if you've seen Saturday Night Live, um, every once in a while I will say, in feline AIDS, and um, a few of you who know the skit got that one. Um, so that's what we do, and I serve at the cathedral in Orlando. But what I want to do tonight is, I know you're doing a Lenten series on, on um, practices, spirituality, things about Lent, and what I want to look at is, the, is a radical introspection and a theology of yourself by looking at Romans 14, 7, 14 through 8, 1. So Romans 7, 14 through 8, 1. You can grab the Bible there. I will read you the passages that we need, um, but go ahead and grab it. It's on page 982. If, yep. So we'll be looking at that. And I'm a, uh, I'm a Lent junkie. Um, I feel most at home during Lent. Personality. I grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal situation, um, Calvary Chapel background, and so when I when I came to the Episcopal, the Anglican faith when I was in 1990 or so, um, I was 17. My friend, I was in a band, and my friend's dad was an Episcopal priest, and I got a prayer book and started reading it, and I felt I feel really at home with the penitential stuff. That really hit home for me because. 
not because I like morbid introspection, that's not helpful, but because of what it points me to, which is the unconditional grace of God found in Jesus who died for us because of our sin and our suffering. And uh, it highlights that so much. And I just, I enjoy the penitential season. I love all the colics. So I'll be reading to you some of our, our colics. So uh, we're going to get as lengthy as possible. But before we dive into Romans, let me read, let me tell you a story about some research by a professor named Dan Ariella. And he is the James B. Duke Professor of Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He studies cheating. And not like, you know, adultery, but just cheating. And games, just, whoa. Yeah. <clears throat> he studies, whoa, you want, you want to do a mic text? <laughs> We're good. One, two, three. You good to go? Check, two, three, four. All right. And he, he studies cheating, and specifically when and why we cheat. He studied the Enron meltdown and bankruptcy, and he noticed that it took for Enron to fall apart. It took thousands of people to perpetuate the lie that cost people billions of dollars. And his question is this. Are there just a few really bad apples that do lots of evil, or are there lots of kind of bad apples? Are there lots of, are there a few bad apples who do all of the evil, or are there lots of kind of bad apples? That was his question. The study, he gives people a sheet of 20 math questions and not enough time to complete them. So you can't do it. And after five minutes, he asked people to pass the sheet in so he could pay them $1 per question. And in this scenario, the average person, this is the, the baseline, the average person given five minutes and 20 questions completed four problems. And he did this numerous times to make sure four was the number. That's, that's the average person that would come in would get four in 20 minutes. And then... He tempted people to cheat. And uh, one way, he would say, okay, shred the paper and then just tell me how many you got right. And when he did that, suddenly the number went up to seven because there's no evidence. So he found that it wasn't a few bad apples like people who cheated a lot. Instead, he found that almost everybody cheated a little. And then he thought, okay, that's a good test from four to seven, but everyone's doing it. Then he thought, I want to I give some factors and see what happens, kind of economic rational theory. And so they varied the money paid. He thought, surely if there's, if there's some increase in the money, that will increase the temptation. So he gave 50 cents, a dollar, five dollars, and ten dollars per question. Still got the same results. Didn't make sense. He was totally confused. He thought, okay, lots of people cheating a little bit. Then they varied the possibility of getting caught. So, okay, maybe it's not the incentive. Maybe it's the threat of getting caught. And so they said, okay, shred half the paper. Shred the whole paper. Just go pay yourself out of the bowl of money and don't say anything. No matter what they did, it always came up to be around seven. You know, six and three quarters and seven and a quarter. I mean, it's, for research purposes, they were dumbfounded because this did not make sense. They, people, all of these hundreds of people were not sensitive to economic rational theory, which says that people will make the rational, logical choice. More money, more temptation. Less threat of getting caught, more cheating. And it didn't happen. Across the board, regardless of the factors, everyone cheated a little bit. So he wanted to know what was going on. And he realized, in his phrase, there were other forces at play. Now, we know what those forces are, but he was really surprised by this and said, what are these other forces? His theory to explain this, and this is his, I, I like it when researchers get a little bit funny and because, uh, you know, I guess they get bored, so they, they find simple ways to do it. So he called it the personal fudge factor. That was his academic term for <laughs> what these other forces were, the personal fudge factor. And he said, there are two forces at work. First, we want to look in the mirror and feel good about ourselves. That's one force. We want to look in the mirror and feel good about ourselves so we don't want to cheat. 
Second, we still want the benefits that would come from cheating, though. <laughs> so we cheat just a little bit. That way, we can still, still feel good about ourselves, because it's just a little bit, but we still get the benefits of cheating. And that's, that was his big aha, was the personal fudge factor. So it turned into, more, it was behavioral psychology. I mean, this was, that's what he's doing, is behavioral economics. So apparently, we all still want the benefit from cheating, but at a low degree, as long as it doesn't change our impression of ourselves. As long as it doesn't change our... I know how this works. I can yell. Let me move up there. Yeah. No? I got you. I got you at 743. I don't need your pity. I don't need your charity. I'm just going to make the, I'm going to make the good story shorter, though. So. I should probably get to the Bible soon, huh? <laughs> all right. I think we're good. We'll try. So we all want the benefit of cheating at a low degree, as long as it doesn't change our impressions of ourselves. And so Ariella found his answer. This also fits with, have you all watched um, Family Feud? Okay. Oh, yeah. I like it. Now we're talking. Family Feud. They're one of the, the final bonus round where they do all the money. Okay? One of the questions for that was, how many of the Ten Commandments have you broken? And when the first person said three, Steve Harvey chuckled. He was like, hmm. And then the second person, the second family member, got up there, and they were like, how many, how many Ten Commandments? And of course, it's, you know, what would people say? And the person said, Seven. And then he was like, the look on his face, and he's very, you know, just animated. And then they turned around, and they did the how many people thing, and said, okay, um, you said three, and they got like five points. Seven? Zero points. The top answer of how many of the Ten Commandments have you broken? And Steve Harvey, when they got to seven, they said, seven? He said, who does that? Like, just this look of shock, and they all chuckled. The top answer was one. The, the impression that we have of ourselves is magnificent. We're, we're generally breaking one, maybe two of the commandments. And that fits also just playfully. The Family Feud and you know, Duke University economic behavioral research, it fits. What this shows us is that we are each a divided self. We are divided selves. And the divide is not between this group and that group. But it's the dividing line that goes between all of us in the middle of us. We are divided, conflicted selves all the time. What a paradox humans are. Pascal said, what a freak, what a monster, what a chaos, what a subject of contradiction, what a marvel, judge of all things, an imbecile earthworm, possessor of truth and sink of uncertainty and error, Glory and rubbish of the universe. We are a paradox. He's a little bit intense. Uh, a little, little too lenty there, but, but we're a paradox. This is the divided self, and it goes deeper than cheating for a few dollars. It goes a little bit deeper than the I only break two or three commandments. Think about how this works out. How are you divided? Think about, think, I'm going to give you four selves that you carry around the public self, you know, right now, I mean, we're, we're all charming and hospitable and wonderful. The public self, and that's fine. That, that's why things work. You want people having a public self. That's why people are nice to each other in basic manners. What about your private self? The one that your spouse or your friends know about? Other people know about that self. But, you know, some of the secrets or some of the story doesn't have to be all bad. It could be, I mean, all, all things you've done. It could be things that have been done to you, but things that you just don't get up here and talk about just randomly or at dinner because it's private, and those things belong to be private. That makes sense, a public self, a private self. What about the secret self? We all got one. Those are the thoughts that you don't tell other people. 
you might get found out, but you don't tell people those things. It's the things you do or say or think that you actually keep secret because of shame or just basic decency. I mean, there's different motivations that go into the secret self. And then there's another one. It's the hidden self. It's the one that you don't know about. You got one of those lurking in you. All of a sudden you go, why did I do that? Where did that impulse come from? Why is that love in that direction and not that direction? That's, when you have those moments of insight of like, what's going on? That's the hidden self having some influence. So, I mean, we are, we're not just divided in some generic sense. We're divided really significantly between our public, our private, our secret, and our hidden selves. We, we are a paradox. So, what I want to do is focus our attention on what life looks like caught up in the tension between what God calls us and what our lives all too often look like. So there's a, the big tension for me is from Romans 7, and something I think we, is beneficial to look at during Lent, is there's a tension, and I want to give our attention to our identity according to what God calls us in Christ and what our lives all too often look like. Let me tell you some of the Bible words that are used for you if you are in Christ. If you have faith in Christ and you're a child of God, you are called righteous, pure, perfect, holy, and blameless. That's way better than any words you could make up for yourself, too. I mean, talk about positive self-statements. <laughs> like, you know, I'm smart and nice. I mean, we come up with, like, really okay ones if you're going to compliment yourself I mean, God calls you, if you're in Christ, you're righteous, pure, perfect, holy, and blameless. And versus how we often feel from our experience, which is unrighteous, impure, defiled, wrong, unholy, and guilty. We are divided selves. So let's look at this tension because there, there's going to be a tension if that's what God calls us and what our reality is, is this other, the opposite of that. How do you deal with that divided self without either slipping into despair, if you just listen to this voice, or you, you know, self-righteousness, if you only listen to this voice? And so there's a tension. The divided self is in tension. And these parts of ourselves are not just different parts, but parts in tension. So in Romans 7... I'm going to read 14 through 19. That'll be the first point. The first point about our divided selves are that they are in tension. That's point one, the tension that you feel. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then it, no it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. This passage drives home the profound and perplexing disorder that sin causes in all of our lives. The tension is between what is that you are genuinely new in Christ, but you're not completely new. And there's going to be a tension in that. It's a real newness. You're not just called new. You're actually new. You're alive. You're born again. You're regenerated. New heart, new mind. You're really genuinely new. That's why some of you, when you, you, you think back to when you weren't a believer, when you weren't in Christ, and you're like, something happened. I changed. You did change. You weren't only forgiven, which is the doozy, <laughs> but he actually changed you. But you're not completely new yet. And so genuinely new, but not completely new, creates part of this tension. We are simultaneously regenerated and struggling with sin. About the human condition, Anglican theologian uh, Cranmer 
Anglican theologian and Cranmer scholar Ashley Knoll says this, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We basically, we do what we love. That's what he's saying. We're not, we're not sitting around doing economic rational theory. That's why that test didn't make any sense. They're trying to apply economic rational theory to something like how I want to perceive myself. Well, that breaks everything because we love ourselves and we love our image. And so we primarily are beings of desire and our will and our rational capacities follow our affections. Now add to that the reality that we're actually new in Christ, but not completely new. So we have competing loves. Some from the new me and some from the old me. And this plays out from the day-to-day kind of mundane things to the very, very serious. I, this, these competing loves are seen in really basic things about how I work out. Just basic exercise. Or saving money. Or eating healthy. I mean, just the basics of life. It also comes all the way down to how I talk to my kids. I can feel an unbelievable, deep, sacrificial love for my children, and it will go away in five seconds if they piss me off. I mean, it, it switches. And this is, I, I, I'm, I'm playful with it, but this is my biggest point of like sense of failure and mirror back to myself. I have a seven and nine-year-old little girls. Like, the power dad has is not wasted on me. And so... When I, when I bark at them and I'm thinking, oh, I just yelled at them again, and then I'm going to tell them how much I love them, I'm going to be so confusing. Like, I don't want to be the dad who teaches their little girls that yelling at them is what you do because you love them. Like, that kind of conflict. Like, stop yelling at the kid just because they didn't pick up their sock. I mean, I turned into a cranky old 45-year-old guy. And that's why I feel that pressure between, like, but it's not, I really like them. But then if I don't get my way, because I'm a control freak, if, they don't, if, if, if my house isn't the way I want it, I can sacrifice their just basic emotional stability with me needing to have a clean walkway in the hallway. Like, it's really weird, the petty things that I will pick up on. Am I the only one? Okay, good. Whew. You're looking at me, I was like, either I sound like I'm from Mars or they're all tracking with me. Um, or the people you love the most in your life, your kids, your parents, your children. You love them deeply, but at the same time, you can snap on them the quickest. Then, how that works with our love and obeying of God. I mean, so this divided self is playing itself out all the way down. From the most simple things to how you drive and how you eat to your relationship with God. And what this feels like is we feel and experience a conflict of our varied loves and it feels like perpetual, intense, internal chaos. It's always there. It's just how much are you aware of it? Perpetual, internal chaos. That's just how it is of conflicting loves. You're like, you have these little voices, not you, not now, not you. Okay, I'll do that. I mean, that's how the impulses, this is how obedience works out. And in that whole mess, we need something to break in. So, let me give you a picture of how this chaos works and how the divided self plays itself out. When I was 18, 17, 18, right around graduating high school, I was watching TV and I saw this guy named Wesley Allen Dodd. Does anyone know that name? He was a serial killer. There's no little, little ears in here, are there? No little ears at all, right? Okay. God, I'll start scaring kids. He was, he's known as one of the most evil killers in history. He was executed on January 5th, 1993, and it was the first legal hanging in the United States at his request since 1965. So he got his request to be hanged at his request as the first one, and he called no defense witnesses. And I was fascinated by this guy. And they did a story on him, and he was about to be executed a few weeks from this interview that I saw. And so I wrote him a letter. Because I, I told him, you know when you're going to die. So I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Because if anyone needs to know, you need to know because you're going to be standing in front of 
the judgment seat of God, and there's, there's forgiveness available. So he wrote me back and said, in the interview, I didn't talk about my faith. Um, I've been baptized for years, and I've studied so much Bible, I could probably be a Bible college professor. But I don't want to use my faith to get off because I've done evil things. And my defense attorney wants me to use my faith and the change in my life as a defense. I'm not even calling defense witnesses. What I've done is not defensible. I've broken the law and I deserve to die. And most of all, I'm afraid that if I get out, I'll kill someone again. I'm afraid of myself. So I can't wait to get to heaven and I'll see you on the other side. And then he quoted, it was really cool. He's like, thanks, you visited me when you were in prison. I was like, oh, but have this guy. And the reason he was hanged is because of the way he killed children by hanging and just horrible, like I don't even want to say the kind of stuff, but don't read it. It's just think of the most horrible things you could do. And then he would, um, while they were dying and dead, and so he said, I want to die like my victims did. And so just the kind of that sense, but that sense of, I know I'm new, but I don't trust myself. I, I need it. I just want to die. I want to be in heaven. <laughs> um, that's a picture of the conflict between the old self and the new self. Unless we can acknowledge these dimensions of ourselves, we are and will be in conflict. And unless we can unveil these selves, especially the secret, and ask for insight on the hidden self and know that he's not annoyed or put out or rolling his eyes or turning his back on you, we will remain deceived and divided. There's one place you can go and unveil everything, and he doesn't flinch like anybody else. And that's, that's our God. And that's where we, we need in the middle of that tension to not think that he expects us to put our best foot forward. He's totally comfortable with the part that nobody sees. And only that can start to unravel some of that tension. But in that tension, as Kierkegaard explains, perpetual conflict gives rise. I was trying to do an interpretive dance. Maybe it's that. Let's see if that's what it is. Try that. 720. So, with tension, if the, the tension leads to despair, and even in the middle of grace, the drive to do evil lurks alongside the will to do right, and this is not a pleasant state. That feeling of despair in the middle of tension arouses a cry of deliverance. This is what 21 through 24 for I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. And here's the despair. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? This despair is discouraging. It's perplexing. It's exhausting, and it's overwhelming. That's why Paul used the word wretched. He was using the most intense language he could find about that experience. This is the Apostle Paul. <laughs> By the way, the Apostle Paul, this is just fascinating little tidbit that you, uh, on him. In the beginning of his ministry, he wrote that he was the least of the apostles. Remember that? That was at the beginning of his ministry. And then... Uh, when in the middle of his ministry, he said that he was the least of the saints. He went from least of the apostles to least of the saints. At the end of his ministry, to, in, to Timothy, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. <laughs> he wasn't afraid. He wasn't being melodramatic. The more he grew in maturity, the le it looked like a downward trajectory. If you're like, whoa, Paul, this spiritual life thing's not doing too good for you. It, Least of the apostles, least of the saints, chief of sinners. It looks like a horrible trajectory of spiritual development. Except for the humility that's involved in all of that, to be able to say that. And that, that's a man growing and growing in his awareness of the character of God, and that's the safest place to unveil. And so it's Paul who's the one who says, 
wretched man that I am. He's, again, he's not just being dramatic. Um, it's that he's, he's giving the point of that despair when the tension gets too, too, uh, too much. And what we need, and he's talking about this I and this other part, there's, there's this human ego, the I, the I myself, and then there's the flesh. And the struggles between these two parties and the victory keeps on going to the flesh and sin. This is not a picture of him figuring it out and getting it together. What he needs is something to break in from the outside. He needs some light to punch through the darkness. And if not, um, he, he's, he's describing this because his will and his desires seem to be in bondage to some other force. And that's why he's crying out in despair. Let me tell you a story that I think captures that despair that Paul's talking about. One of my friends works for a group called International Justice Mission. Have you heard about them? They do anti-labor like, trafficking and sex trafficking around the world. They're like cowboys of justice. They do research and they're lawyers and they kick in the doors and they take slaves out. And my friend who is going to law school, she was in India and she knew there was a brick kiln where people were, were chained in this labor trafficking situation. They did all the investigations. They worked with the local Indian police, and they finally made the raid. And they, they walked in, and they kicked the doors in, and they released all these people. And then a few weeks later, all of them went back on their own volition, freed from labor trafficking, where they had to work 12 hours a day they got water and maybe some rice. And then after a few weeks, and it was difficult, she and her team just had a rough time. They were confused and they were disoriented. And they went back in, uh, to a life that was safe, which was a life of slavery. That's us. At first we look at that and go, who are these ungrateful people who are just freed and all the work that went into it? Why would they go back to slavery on purpose? That's a good question. <laughs> Why do we keep on doing that? There is a deep despair in our going back to our old slave masters. We're like a freed slave who still jumps at our master's voice. We are like a woman with a healed leg who still limps out of habit. We're like a former prisoner who still wakes up at prison hours. You don't have to wake up at 4 a.m. and make your bed, but you still do. That's how trained we are by our loves that do not help us. Another power has to break in and enter the field. Something besides the I myself, because my flesh keeps on pummeling me. And something else needs to join the battle if deliverance is going to come. And that's exactly what happens in Romans 7 and 8. And we have this, verse 25 through 8-1. So we have the tension of the divided self, after you linger in that tension long enough, you have the despair of the wretched man. And then, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We end on that. So despite the despair that we feel, we have numerous reasons to hope. As a priest, after our confession of sin, uh, I get the great privilege of declaring the promise to everyone. And I get to see everyone's faces. <laughs> Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. By the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you to eternal life. So let's go through some of those real quick. So this is our hope, by the way. We, uh, we have the divided self, so we have this tension. That tension leads to despair. We cry out in despair, and we're given hope. And this is the hope that we actually have. And we, this is why we... We don't just do morbid introspection during Lent. We actually, this is when we start talking about the power of God and the victory of God. That's why I love that we did, you know, don't leave us in error, you know, out of, out of error into truth, out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life. I mean, that's why I like the Eucharistic prayer B. Is that on purpose? Is that a Eucharistic prayer B? Was that a... It's not just for you. 
Not, no, I, 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 I didn't assume to have that power. But I mean, Eucharistic prayer B is the perfect. To talk about Christ the victor, we, when you start reading prayers, we have no power in ourselves. We don't just sit around and mope about that. We go, okay, we have no power in ourselves. Where is the power? That's why we end up talking. This is the time to actually talk about how good the good news is because it's the vacuum of the goodness that, that the despair highlights. So first one, Almighty God, have mercy on you. Forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see the part that said no condemnation? That's what that one is. There is now no condemnation. What's happening there is Paul is actually declaring the final judgment now. He's saying, you don't have to worry about the final judgment. The verdict's already in. There is now no condemnation, and there's none coming. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. So he's actually making a really cool point. He's not just saying, so all the bad stuff you've already done so far, you're forgiven, no condemnation. He's saying final judgment's now, no more condemnation. Because Jesus took all of the no, there's no more no to be wrung out on you. There's not like a, he's, he, he wrung out all of his no on Jesus and there's no more left for you. There's only yes. There's now no condemnation. So you are forgiven. And as a priest, it's my favorite thing because I get to watch people and, uh, and all, all the people who get to sit up there with the chancel party and see it, they all get to see it too. Sometimes you smile. It's that kind of like, yeah, that's the appropriate response. Sometimes you're, uh, you're crying. Sometimes you guys do a sigh of relief. That's the best one. <laughs> I love you're like, oh, that, that face of like, thank God. Woo, I've been carrying that burden for a while. Um, some just kind of take a deep breath, kind of peace. I mean, the, re- the responses are, there's, there's a variety of responses, and, there, and you probably feel a few of those throughout the year anyway. Um, and there's a, uh, there's a story by Ernest Hemingway called uh, The Capital of the World, and it's about a son who's estranged from his father. And, and uh, the son basically pulled a um, prodigal son and took the money and ran. And so they were estranged, and the father went after him. And the father went to Madrid, where he thought his son would be, and went looking for him and looking for him, and finally said, okay, he put an ad in the paper, said, Paco, this is Papa. All is forgiven. Meet me at Hotel Montana at 12 noon on Tuesday. So Papa showed up to Hotel Montana, and 800 boys showed up. (laughs) all looking to not be estranged from their father. Paco was a common name, and all the Pacos nearby thought, must be my dad. Let's get this fixed together. That's what it feels like. The, the no forgiveness, or no, your sins are forgiven. You're no longer estranged. Like, that impulse of Paco and Hemingway, that's the impulse that we all have. That's a great impulse. And so run with it. That's why the hope is that your sins are forgiven. And there's a collect for this. This is the second Sunday in Lent collect. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways. That's what you need to hear in the middle of tension and despair. That's one dimension of your hope. That's not it. Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness. He's not done. You're not only getting your sins forgiven, he's going to strengthen you in all goodness. He's going to set you free from bondage. And sometimes, most of the time, it's slow, and it's over and over again. Sometimes, it's fast. But all of you have some instance of spiritually and personally looking in the rearview mirror of your life, and all of a sudden you look back and you think, hey, that's where those chains are. That feels good. 
Like you kind of look down at your wrist and you're like, ah, the chains are off. And they're starting to heal. And the chains over my shoulder, they're gone. I can actually stand up a little bit. And I can actually walk in faith a little bit more briskly than I was before. And there's going to be another bondage. We know how this works. I mean, he's not done with you. He's going to keep on working on you. But there's some good moments of realizing that he's going to set you free and strengthen you in all goodness. And that's the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. It's not because you're somehow the varsity Christian who figured out the right moves, but it's the miraculous work that he changed. He somehow figured out how to deal with you being genuinely new but not completely new and change some things. And that's the ministry of the Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you. And so we shouldn't be shocked to see that some things change. And the best part is that the unruly will that you can't manage doesn't scare him one bit. If he can make a dead son come from the de- rise from the dead, he can handle your impulse for whatever it is. He's not surprised and he's not shocked and he's not thinking, oh no, you like alcohol. I don't know what to do. He's just thinking, okay, let's keep you alive and we'll work your magic. And he does his thing. And there's a colic for this. It's the fifth Sunday in Lent. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Thank God. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely be fixed where true joys are to be found. So, it's not just that our sins are forgiven. It's not just that he strengthens us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you to eternal life. He's not done with you. He's forgiven you. He's going to strengthen you. And he will see it through to completion. He's going to finish what he started. That's what Philippians 1, 6 tells us. The good work he began in you, he will see through to completion. And that's our promise. And there's a colic for this also. It's the third Sunday in Lent. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evils, thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. So thanks be to God, in Lent, we get to explore your divided self that is in tension. That tension inevitably and always will lead to despair. Now that despair can either be a self-centered despair or it could be a gospel despair. Martin Luther talked about gospel despair. Gospel despair causes you to cry out for mercy and fixes your eyes on Christ. And so may this Lent, may you experience anew some gospel despair for the purpose of fixing your eyes on Christ who gives us no condemnation where true hope is found. Thank you. So we have... Seven thirty-six, and I cut out a story too, um, but I wanted to leave time. Um, it's a good story, and if we need it, we'll tell it. But um, I wanted to be able to engage a little bit, and we have about seven minutes, and we can do a lot in seven minutes. So, um, questions or clarification or concerns? Maybe I overemphasize something too much, and you want it nuanced or something like that. So we have some time. Any thoughts or questions that you'd like? I, um, I don't know. There, I'm sure there was someone who was honest, because that's how you get the average. But what he was expecting was a whole bunch of, like, basically honest people, like four or five, and then a whole bunch of, like, a few really, really bad people. That's what he was trying to get at. But it was, it was, it was the Enron thing that got him. He was like, that's what made him curious. He's like, it took thousands of people to perpetuate that lie. So there were, I'm sure there were a few people who said, who were just totally honest. But for the most part, um, the majority of people cheated a little bit. That was the, the big aha. He did a TED talk on it also. 
Um, and the TED talk is he might he goes through a little bit more on the research also. Yes, sir. I do. At, well, if you believe, do you, uh, the question is, do you believe that Wesley Allen Dodd went to heaven? Um, if what he said is, I have no reason to doubt it. He said, um, I, uh, I, I couldn't find the, I had it scanned, so I was going to try to read it, part of it. He said, I, I don't want any defense attorney on earth to try to save my life because I forfeited the right to live by what I've done. But thankfully, in Jesus Christ, I have the only defense attorney I really need before the throne room of God, because I, my sins are forgiven and I'm declared righteous. And I thought, uh, yep, that, that, that's heaven. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, it, whether, you know, I don't know. So you, when you hear that, you go, yep, absolutely, he's in heaven. Um, and... Um, he, he wanted to be obedient. He got baptized and was part of our community there. And not that baptism and communion gets you in, but it's a, it's a good sign of what it means. I mean, baptism is a picture of justification. Once for all, it's done. And then the, the continual nourishment of the Eucharist is a good picture of sanctification. He was just, he, was, he seemed all in. Um, and uh, his three-page handwritten letter was, he, I, I wrote him to present him the gospel. And then he presented it to me better than I presented it to him. So I was moved by his letter to me. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, seemed, it seemed deep down into his bones. Yes, it, it's offensive. It's, and now that's the thing is I can, if I told you all some of my stories, this is recorded. Do, do other people like listen to this or is this like just a church, church? So like, yeah, my wife and my, my, okay, yeah, I'd done some things. <laughs> so, um, and so some of you could listen to my story and go, you? You thought you should be a minister? Really? Like, it, it can happen pretty quickly. So, the C.S. Lewis talks about how we just draw circles. Everyone draws circles. He talks about the golden circle, but we all draw circles. Now, we can draw our circle. You can do it as Anglicans against the Baptists or whatever, or you can do it with during race or um, economy. We draw circles, and so we always draw circles around people that are like us. So, we always end up drawing a circle and our thing is not really that big of a deal. Well, a lot of the things we do are scandalous to other Christians. We're, we're I mean, our greed, our materialism, like, like Christians in Africa, when they come over and visit, and I, I got ordained in Africa, and I tell them about America, like, they're offended. Like, I, I took, I live in Orlando, so one of my friends came in, and I, sh I went past and showed him Disney World. I was like, you want to go? And he's like, these are all adults. I thought they were children. And I was like, no, yeah, they're all adults. He's like, what are adults doing playing like this? He's like, they should be working and being like, and I was like, and he was actually deeply offended. Well, that's a simple cultural thing. But the, so the scandal of grace um, is that for whosoever confesses, they're in. And it's offensive to, it's the offense of the gospel, which is that um, Wesley Allen Dodd, who strangled and hanged children, while he was sexually abusing them. I mean, the Apostle Paul, the reason he said he was the chief of sinners is because he was dragging Christians out during their worship and having them thrown to lions and stoning them. And he probably over... And he, I mean, Stephen got stoned, so they were like... He was killing people. It, the scandal would be like when, when the, the, the radical Muslim groups were sawing off the heads of Christians. It would be like one of them converting. And all of the Christians would be like, really, that guy converted? He's probably just infiltrating so he can kill all of us. That's what people thought about Paul. Paul showed up and they're like, whatever, get out of here. Don't be stupid and naive to think that he converted. He's killing us. Like, it would have been that shocking that Paul not only was forgiven, but was an apostle. <laughs> like, that's scandalous to me. Like, I mean, I did some skanky stuff, but I didn't kill anybody, Paul. 
And I didn't, I didn't call the work of Christ demonic work of evil. Like Paul was getting close to like blaspheming the Holy Spirit and stuff he was doing. I mean, so Paul was about as offensive as you could get. That's why I think it's the Pauline articulation of the gospel that's so scandalous. is because it's the unconditional love of God. That's the scandal is the unconditional. There's nothing they can do to earn it, nothing you can do to lose it. You can't make God, your obedience or lack of obedience doesn't change a thing. And so when I tell my girls that, like my girls get this when I go, you know, I love you no matter what. And they're like, even, and one of my girls tested it, I, just for the sake of not embarrassing her, I won't tell you what she said, but she was like, hey dad, what if I said, what if I called you a, and she learned a word that I didn't know she learned. And, but she was testing, I was like, I still love you. I said, even if you told me that you hate me, I will love you. That was today. And she, they, she just looked at me and she goes, even if I said I hated you and meant it? And I was like, yeah. You're my kid. I love you. I, just, I love you because I love you. And she goes, oh. <laughs> like, took it to another level. That's the scandal. I mean, she was feeling it. I mean, I feel it. I mean, I feel like I have to over-explain Wesley Allen Dodd's faith because I feel the scandal of it. Like, trust me, it was legitimate. I was moved by it because I feel the scandal at the same time. And that's what unconditional love does. So, is that close? Okay. With Amen. Thank you, sir. Amen. <laughs> West Island Dodd. Yep. Brother, thank you for being with us, coming all this way to share us that My pleasure. scandal of the gospel. God bless you. Thank, thank you. you. Tomorrow night, ministry architects, consultants will be with us. If you have a word into the youth group, we would love for you to come and share uh, with us. That is from 6 to 9, and we are not feeding you for a change. Like, can we feed you a lot? But tomorrow, we're not going to feed you. Uh, but so, so eat first and if you're going to come to that. And if you're not going to come to that, pray for that. Well, if you are going to come to that, pray for that. But um, and, then, and then we've got lots of stuff going on. One thing I didn't mention, we've got some folks here. I don't want to put you on the spot. Would you tell us a little bit about Church Without Walls, Monday, Thursday, Angela? Yeah.
answers my question. Yeah. He definitely didn't have to write him back. No. You can't. Thanks for